Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of Unmuted Generations. I'm your host, Ryan Meal, and today I have on a product marketing manager from Dave.com who's had some very unique experiences living in New Bethesda, South Africa, and Melbourne, Australia. In this episode, we discuss his experiential influences of spending time in the outdoors backpacking, living abroad, and helping the underserved within third world countries. If you'd like to assist with this charitable initiative to provide clothing for education throughout the village of New Bethesda, South Africa during COVID-19, please check out the link in the description. I'm truly glad to have him on today. This is such a great initiative that's making a positive impact on the world, especially during this time in a country that needs it the most. And without further ado, please help me welcome Jackson Yamagita. Welcome to Unmuted Generations, Jackson. We finally got you on. I know. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. Excited to chat. I'm excited to chat, too. And um, thank you for coming on. I know we've been planning this for like over a month, and I'm glad we finally got down. (laughs) And also, I'm really glad because my past couple episodes have been solely about business, really, just talking about somebody's career, what they do from their eight to five. And I'm really excited because in this episode, we're going to be talking about more than just the eight to five and what you do outside of work, really. So I was wondering if you could give a brief intro, talk about your current job, and then we could go from there. Totally. Yeah. And not to make it about business, but I'll start with where I currently work. But uh, yeah, I I currently manage a product marketing team at Dave.com. We're like a growing fintech brand that places a lot of its mission in like reinventing areas of like our customers' financial lives through like no interest cash advances on paychecks, um, which really helps a lot of people bridge that gap between paydays. Um, You know, we're working to help individuals with income creation by introducing them to like different types of like gig economy jobs and other financial wellness opportunities. And then more recently expanding into the banking space um, where we've got full banking accounts with uh, debit cards to go with it. And so my team primarily focuses on like the life cycle marketing component of the business where, you know, once our user acquisition team brings a customer into Dave, it's my team's job to like nurture them through that journey. And, you know, the baton has been passed off to us to, you know, get them through onboarding, um, upsell them into other opportunities, key feature engagement, and then like any transactional communications you can imagine coming with a financial institution. So it's a, it's a rapidly growing team, but we have a ton of fun doing it. Awesome. And for those who don't understand, you know, the lifecycle marketing, it's basically when the customer ends up signing up with Dave, he makes sure they're satisfied and everything like that. So awesome, exactly. awesome work, especially during COVID-19 when I know there's probably a ton of people out there struggling with their expenses and possibly mm-hmm. going through that overdraft. So I love your company's Absolutely. mission and story. And on top of just working for a very, I guess, morally just company and helping some of the people that are in need. I mean, a lot of your side projects outside of work are involved with helping the underserved. Um, you Would you like yeah. to go into that a little? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, recently while... Um, revisiting a passion of mine, um, working with like a small local village in South Africa, 
two projects have kind of spun themselves into existence out of it. Um, the first of these projects is a, a charitable drive called uh, Clothing for Education, where we're essentially outfitting um, a small primary school of about 250 kids um, in this rural village called New Bethesda. And we're outfitting these kids completely from head to toe in new clothes. And for a little bit of backstory behind that, um, this has been a village that had already been hanging on a thread for decades leading up to COVID-19. But now with a full global pandemic um, on the rise, we're pairing that with what was already a barely pulsating economy, the global pandemic, and then them being in the Southern hemisphere, they're going into like the winter months ahead. Mm -hmm. And for people like you and I, and most people in the Western world, like we don't, we don't associate cold or freezing temperatures when we think of South Africa or really anywhere within Africa. Um, but these kids are going to school in sub-freezing temperatures. And in fact, like even as, as recently as this last week, it was snowing out there in their village. And That's so, crazy. yeah, it's, it's wild. And so the problem that's occurring right now is that these families are being impacted by the economic downturn of the community and they're unable to adequately clothe their kids to go to school. And so more often than not, when the temperature drops below freezing, these kids are just staying home for a portion of the winter months. And it's, it's really hindering their ability to develop physically and emotionally alongside their peers. And it's just, it's made it really difficult for them to just grow into the people that they're going to be. And on top of that, the school is also a primary source of nutrition. I mean, these kids are getting a, a good portion of their calories for the day while they're at school. And so a more immediate need that we launched was a project to raise funding to outfit these, uh, this entire school from head to toe in, let's say, beanies, jackets, sweaters, gloves, shirts, pants, socks, and even shoes. And most of that work has entailed like working with distributors and some of our contacts on contacts on the ground within the school and getting headcount for sizing and for each of the children. And then like lastly, raising funds um, to help provide this level of aid over to their village. And so, um, so far we've been really excited with some of the success we've seen so far. Um, I mean, just in the last few weeks alone, our crowd, our crowdsourcing campaign has raised over $5,000 wow. um, for getting that aid over there. So we're, we're excited to put a wrap on it here pretty soon and just start getting some of the clothing items over to them. That's such a charitable yeah. cause. And I, I commend you for it with, with oh, everything. I, have. I mean, that's so awesome. <laughs> I, I feel so bad for these kids because it's the little things you take for granted, being able to go to school and just be warm. Um, yeah. And, you know, you were kind of talking about how, a lot of their, I guess, just dietary things, they, they get it from going to school um, mm -hmm. and along with their education and how they aren't able to develop uh, because they aren't able to go to school. So I guess just in their typical school life, is it a typical, I don't know, eight to two where they go there or are they there practically all day and they use it not just for education? Yeah, it, it is a typical eight to two. So they'll come there and they can get breakfast and then, you know, they'll do all their schoolwork um, and all their different subjects. And then they'll go out and they, you know, are able to, you know, physically develop by, you know, getting out on the playground and in the park. And, um, but yeah, then they'll get their lunch and then they'll head home. And so it's like, it's their place and safe space during the day. So. Got it. And 
with South Africa and just Africa in general, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I think we've been hearing stories that that country has been suffering for years and years and years. I even remember yeah. when I was kind of an infant, they were holding a bunch of things for Africa. I think they did the, like all these different charities. And I know Tom's or was it Tom's? It was the one with yeah, the it shoe. Was Tom's. Yeah. They donated shoes over there. Yeah. So how bad is the situation considering you've actually been there, stepped foot there and, and lived in the community before? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's tough. It's, it's definitely a culture shock when you show up for the first time and, you know, you've got kids that are, you know, wearing their one pair of shorts and their, you know, and shirt and it's got holes ripped all the way up, up the seams of it. And like, this is their clothing that they've got. And like, you know, they'll wear that until they get the next hand-me-downs that the family had. And so it's like, it is really heartbreaking to see, but I would say like one thing that's been really uplifting like going there is you see the, you can see and feel the energy that comes from these kids. And like, even though they've got little to like no clothing items or even just personal items, like they're the happiest kids that you'll ever meet in the world. And it's just, it's really inspiring to be around. And that energy is just like truly contagious when you're out there. It's a really beautiful thing when you think about it, because when in our current society today, you know, we, we argue about things not being able to go to a mall and purchase clothes, yeah. not, you know, are sometimes Twitter going down for a little when these kids are yeah. just happy <laughs> that they have like a, a beanie to go to school and keep warm throughout the day. It, it's yeah. such, a, such a great thing. Um, and it, it's really beautiful to hear. Yeah. And I mean, it's amazing, like how, how much creativity sparks out of it. I mean, you see these kids making like little go-kart toys out of like wire clothes frames and tennis balls. And like, it's just like some of the stuff is like ingenious, what they're able to create with what they have available to them. It just, it really does make you appreciate the, you know, the small things that we do have. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think it's that. And also the fact that they don't have anything that they're trying to emulate and not in a bad way, but you know, for example, with art, a lot of us see something, you know, we could go to like a painting class and we're like, Oh, I could copy that. But they yeah. may not have those experiences. So everything is just from their pure imagination. It's exactly. Awesome. Um, yeah. How are the communities kind of spread out over there? Because you think of it, we're both based in Southern California and we could say we could drive, I don't know, two stoplights down. There's a school and the mm -hmm. center on every corner. Is it a lot yeah. more of a communal living area? It, it is more of a communal living area. I mean, you've got like certain parts of town are like very much just like shanty town setups. And you may have like one, you may have like one little local medical clinic. You've got your school, you've got your one little grocery outlet, which is just a small market. Um, but it's amazing seeing like how much of the community like depends on each other. I think so much that happens here in the States is we live these like own, our own little independent lives or we go to the store, we, you know, go to school, we go and do this where like these guys are living amongst each other. They're making meals. They're, you know, spending time with one another. I mean, if someone needs like a, a new doorstep, like they're building that and they're just depending on each other to get through it. That's yeah. so awesome. Super mm -hmm. duper awesome. Uh, yeah. One, one other question I had really was, you know, in these communities, how, how do they generate, I guess, money? Because you were saying $5,000, we were able to donate with them in just terms yeah. of funds, but what are their typical day-to-day -day jobs like and how do they actually live their lives? 
Yeah. And, and it's, it's a good question because there's oftentimes not a ton of work. And so they like, some of these communities do rely heavily off of like government assistance, but otherwise like they are really like, I mean, trade, like trade skills and things like that are something that they really focus on. So you've got, you know, a lot of bricklayers or, you know, people that are, you know, doing painting and things like that. And so it's a lot of just trade labor that exists there that they rely off of. Yeah. yeah. Which is, which is awesome, you know, but yeah. for example, if somebody wants to be a scientist or a doctor and stuff, it's, it's very hard to get into that career path. No. Yeah, it, it is. And it, it kind of leads into the second project that we're, that we're building right now. And a friend, a friend and I are actually establishing a scholarship foundation at the moment. And this second project's kind of piggybacking and in a sense, taking a leap off of this existing project and transitions more towards something a little bit more evergreen that we think is going to help um, for years to come within the community. And like one of the big systemic issues, um, and kind of like what you mentioned, was like, what if you want to become a scientist or an engineer? Like, what do they have available to them? And one of the big systemic issues is like, for many of these rural like villages, like their education will only go to like age 12 or 13. And then they're like off on their own to figure out the world. And so, so what we're doing is we're hoping to change that for as many kids as we can by setting up a scholarship to help families abroad. So like Western families or like myself or you, um, to sponsor and support a child through a boarding school education over there. Um, and one component that we're working through at the moment is making a personal connection between the donor family and then the child that they're directly supporting. And so sometimes it's difficult. I mean, you hear about some of these like charitable organizations and you donate money to them, but you don't actually know who or where it's going to. And so what we're looking to do is bridge the gap and create what would, what would be like an everlasting bond between the donor and this child through you know, maybe it's in the form of quarterly virtual check-ins or like updates on progress reports on how they're doing or, you know, getting photos or seeing different personal projects that the child is working on. And so that's that's the second piece of this that we've been kind of working on and going a little bit more legit, like filing for a 501c3, like nonprofit status and really building it the right way. So that's like something that we're looking to help this community overcome for some of their individuals. I think that's so amazing. And it, it's also obviously a work in progress, but I think yeah. once it comes to fruition, it'll be amazing. I'll never forget this one conversation I actually had. And it kind of relates back to this conversation where I was on a, a cruise and I went to Mexico, which, you know, they have their own share of problems, but it's not as bad as Africa. Mm-hmm. And they had those little, I don't know if you've seen them before, but it's like little fish where they bite at your feet and they're so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm like, shoot, I have like 20 bucks, might as well just do it. So I did it. And um, the person who was helping me was like, basically my age. So I'm like, I'll strike up a conversation with her. And Mm -hmm. we were talking about what she's going to school for, etc, etc, her life in Mexico. And she was saying, I wish I was able to go to America because I want to be like a scientist. But the thing is, is Mexico, they only offer classes that are uh, kind of vocational in the sense where I could work on a cruise line or tourism, things like yeah. that. And I I could totally see that with people in South Africa, you know, living in these communal villages, they don't have the opportunities that we do. You know, a lot of uh, the big argument is, Hey, what am I going to pick for my dream career? Well, when you're in South yeah. Africa, you only have 
a couple choices and you don't yeah. have the choice to pursue marketing, pursue science or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's really tough and we're, we're looking forward to try and make as much change in that area as possible. Definitely. So you keep, yeah. you keep referring to we're, so you, you're a part of an organization specifically, correct? Uh, I'm not currently a part of an organization, but I've got a team of a couple of like really great volunteers that we've just partnered together and are kind of building this together. Cool. Cool. And, and what's really, because I'm, I'm assuming you didn't grow up in South Africa, I know you grew up, <laughs> up north, but what's, what's really the backstory and what, what influenced you to contribute so much of your time uh, to South Africa? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, kind of a long-winded story, but I feel like Kind of reflecting back on that, I think most people who make significant changes in their lives can oftentimes isolate or attribute their change in trajectory down to like a single event or, you know, a single action that then creates a chain reaction of subsequent events thereafter. And for me, looking back, I think it was back when I was 18 years old, I had kind of been well on my well on my way, like towing the line of dropping into a very like short-sighted path of whether it be heavier partying or just a general blurry outlook on what the future had in store for me. And pairing that with what was probably like a much more gregarious version of myself uh, with a drive to see how far I could really push the limit, it was, it was pretty clear that something needed to change and change pretty fast at that. And while my mother, you know, if she's listening, would may disagree, but it did take a cataclysmic event for that course correction to happen for me. And that course correction took the form of a vehicle accident I had gotten into at a family reunion that year. And I had been ejected from a vehicle um, that I had been driving. And while I'd only been traveling about 40 miles an hour, it's, I mean, it's something I definitely felt for the 25 feet. I slid across the asphalt um, crazy. before hitting a curb and then ragdolling into the middle of the road. And it's uh, it's amazing how quickly adrenaline kicks in because I remember just laying there collecting my thoughts for a moment. And my first thought after the initial, like, how am I alive shock was like, well, I'm in some deep shit right now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, fortunately I was able to pick myself up and I distinctly remember like popping my middle toe back into place. Cause it was middle of summer. So of course I'm like not wearing shoes. I'm not wearing a shirt. And at that point I look over my left shoulder and I just like see just blackened cobwebs of skin and rocks embedded in my muscle. And uh -huh. I had lost pretty much the skin on the entire left side of my body. And for me, that was kind of where the journey had just started. And I was later like transported to the ICU by my poor mother. Um, we went to the University of California, Irvine, um, like hospital center. And they immediately like, took one look and they're like, yeah, you're, you need to go to the burn unit. Like, Oh my gosh. And, <laughs> and that pretty much became my home for the next couple of weeks. And I think like, well, I'll spare the details of what those like two weeks looked like. I think, you know, it was during that time being surrounded by just the love and compassion of my just friends and family members that I found that like aha moment. And like maybe this life thing's kind of worth living and more importantly, probably sharing with others. And kind of what that led into in my next chapter, um, fast forward a couple years later, was I had grown closer to my cousin's husband, which like unbeknownst to me was about to become a very significant mentor for me and what happened next. And 
he had met with me one day and we had, you know, he asked if I'd ever considered like diving into the outdoors through like backcountry backpacking, which for me, like, you know, I was active outdoors. I enjoyed hiking. I enjoyed, you know, kayaking and body surfing, but I'd never done backpacking. And he, he told me and like shared his story of finding Knowles, which is, um, which stood for the national outdoor leadership school. And like for context, they're, a small like organization based out of Lander, Wyoming, focused on targeting like younger adults. And they focus on building leadership skills through backcountry expeditions and wilderness medicine trips, ranging anywhere from like two days all the way up through a complete semester in the field, which would equate to about 90 days just out in the wilderness. And for me, like by this time, I'd already kind of dialed back um from doing a lot of the stupid things and decisions an 18 and 20 year old would do. And I, I think I, I attribute that to my golf cart. Like it was a golf cart that I had flown through. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> but I attribute that to, to that accident. And, um, but there was one thing I couldn't quite kick and it was this like untethered drive to just like push the envelope and see like what the limit really was. And so that's what Noel's vape became for me. It, you know, I applied and, you know, made my way onto a 30 day backcountry course in Alaska and it gave me that drive again. And I, I wasn't stopping and I spent the next, the next six months pretty much just getting in what at the time was the best shape of my life training for that trip. Yeah. Well, you're in Alaska. That's the, that <laughs> is the backcountry, like, you know, Lake it Tahoe the, or, or Big Bear is not the backcountry. Alaska is. It was, yeah, the final frontier. And so you know, we spent, we spent a couple weeks, once we got there, a couple weeks sea kayaking, and we would camp from island to island um, for about 150 miles along the Kenai Peninsula, which is on the southern coast of Alaska. And, um, you know, once we completed that, we transitioned to doing two weeks of backcountry backpacking in the Chugash Mountain Range. And like, we were deep out there. I mean, a weekend we had a radio in a plane, like a tundra plane, to fly in, land on the tundra, and then drop us off food for the next week. Oh wow! Um, but that's kind of where I landed my first like untraditional taste of really leading teams, like managing risk, and then you know, even managing diversity. And it's incredible how quickly you have to figure it all out once you're just dropped into the backcountry with. 10 other young adults who you're just meeting for the first time. And they're from pin drops all across the country and then even the globe. And so, you know, while I was out there, I kind of found my place and I could be myself and, you know, be uniting with these other groups of like-minded individuals just to achieve a common goal. And that was pushing the limit and experiencing like what was, what else was out there in the world. And, so you kind of like reflecting back on that, you learn to appreciate the real priorities and what matters. And, you know, the background noise of your everyday life kind of just fades into the background. Like you don't have to think about social media. You don't have to think about your text message or what other alerts you're getting on your phone. It's just like focusing on the raw stuff that really matters. And for us, it was, do I have enough water to drink? Do I have enough food to eat? And then do I have shelter to sleep in tonight? And it's kind of amazing how, like, how I've now realized like how much of that can honestly be applied to our lives today at home. I think we spend so much time getting caught up in the whirlwind of our daily lives. Um, you know, we could be using that at a high level of like, 
do I have a roof over my head? Do I have food and water on the table? And am I surrounded by people that care about me? And, you know, you can distill that all the way down to a granular level and, you know, think about it with your daily tasks. Um, you know, a, a Venn diagram that I saw this last week, and I'm going to loosely paraphrase it, but like, you know, one portion of the Venn diagram was like the things in your life that really matter. And then the other section was the things in life that you can control and finding the intersect between those two and hyper-focusing in on that is really important because it blurs out a lot of the distractions from your life that just don't really matter. So it's like, it's no longer just about getting to that arbitrary salary goal you set for yourself or driving that certain make of car. It's, or even just finding the perfect partner right away. It's focusing on the important things and then the rest is just naturally going to come in time. So. I totally agree with that. There's so much noise in our world today, especially because we're in the middle of an election year, but that's not all. I mean, people, yeah. we're stuck at home. We're wrapped up in our own emotions. People get angry because they can't go outside. And yeah. I really think bringing it back to your backpacking and just wilderness experience, I think that's so important because you don't have time to worry about people talking crap about you. You don't have time to worry about what's going on and what's the latest celebrity drama because it's literally life or death. If you don't have enough water, yeah. if you don't have an area to sleep, you're screwed. Exactly. And so like that, I kind of continued with that mindset for a few years. And like, that's what eventually led me to my first experience in South Africa. And so I kind of, you know, I was finishing up school at the time in San Francisco and I had a, I had a buddy of mine who called me up one day and he had been finishing landscape architecture school at Cal Poly uh, San Luis Obispo and happened to have been launching a nonprofit of his own called Swings for Dreams. And, you know, they were found on the premise of getting a group of landscape architects together and traveling overseas to these rural villages and establishing these sustainable parks and playgrounds for primary schools um, uh, for primary schools, um, and creating these play spaces that provide an opportunity for these children to grow and develop emotionally and physically. And, you know, my friend, Nick, he mentioned it on the phone, like, he's just like, you know, I had a couple architects that dropped out last minute. Um, I've got spot on the trip if you want to come and join the team. And, you know, for, for me, I'm, I'm just wrapping up my business degree at the time. And I'm kind of thinking in the back of my head, like, okay, like, I know absolutely nothing about architecture. I don't know how I'm going to be of any <laughs> help here. And so, and that's when we started the discussion and like chatting about where so many overseas projects in South Africa and really anywhere within the developed world oftentimes go awry and that it's common for these organizations to come in and build up these things for these communities for a few weeks or a month. And then they just pick up and leave. And the community may not have even wanted or needed this project. Um, but what's always usually a common denominator when this happens is like, they don't feel ownership. It's not theirs. It doesn't feel like theirs. And so, you know, oftentimes these projects end up crumbling a year or two after they've been built. And so, you know, he said, you know, a critical piece that he wanted to tackle for this project is having the community getting involved and then breaking ground with us. And, you know, well, I didn't know a damn thing about architecture. I think what I had pulled from my experience at Knowles was I could rally a diverse team together to achieve a common goal. Now, I didn't know if I could break through language barriers at first, but like yeah. it was something that I was willing to tackle. So I, I remember just telling him like, all right, 
let's let's do the thing like when is the trip and he just replies with like awesome we leave in two and a half weeks and we've got room <laughs> we've got room for another person if you know of anyone and i was just like oh shit all right well hung up the phone immediately picked it up and called my sister and i was just like uh get ready we're going to africa in two and a half weeks like she's like i don't have a choice (laughs) yeah and like for me it was like it was a pretty surprising moment because like for her she's very she's much more structured and planned in her way of thinking than i am but i think at the end of the day she knew you know how impactful this could be for the community that we're going to be working in but not only that like how much how impactful it could be for her own personal development and you know, speaking for her and I, like we had never experienced something like that before. And so we just like took the opportunity and then just dived right into it. And, you know, at this point, I didn't even have a passport. And so like (laughs) immediately after hanging up the phone with her, I then went straight to the post office, tried to expedite um, a passport. And sure enough, like two days before the trip, it showed up in the mail and then off we went. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was a yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty wild moment, but, you know, and then going to South Africa, once we, you know, made it on the scene and we were welcomed by this, you know, 238 bright smiling faces and their teachers. And, you know, they had prepared like these songs and dances for us. And, you know, for me leading up to that point, like I had never seen like that much love and warmth from like a large group of individuals before in my life. And I mean, it just, we were up on stage just bawling our eyes out. Like it was just such an emotional experience. Um, but, you know, after that ceremony, that was when we got to work. And before we could break ground, even on the existing playground, which was essentially just like a fenced off dirt lot that had been adjacent to the school, we had to spend the first two days just purely picking up broken glass. Oh and like, yeah, and I would assume it was built on top of what was probably a landfill because we could just peel back layer after layer of sediment. And I mean, I think within the first two days, we'd picked up something like 19 pounds of broken glass. Oh my and gosh. It was, yeah, it was like really shocking. And these kids are playing and running on it barefoot. And, you know, they're cutting their feet and you've got eight-year-olds that are bandaging five-year-olds and they don't have gloves. And you know, a statistic that we found out right after that was like 25% of these kids were HIV positive. And oh, like, man. it was just like, it was a heartbreaking and just grounding moment of just like, uh, this is like, this is someone's reality. And it was, it was heartbreaking, but it was inspiring because we knew that there was something that we had to do to help. And so kind of, um, you know, by this time I had organized a group of volunteers, um, from within the community. We had about 12 to 15, um, you know, volunteer adults and, you know, they were helping us like pick up glass for days. And I remember this one moment, like looking up through this like chain linked barbed wire fence. And I see these two women come out from their homes and they just start picking up glass from the other side of the fence. And I was like, you know what? Like, I had this moment where I was like, you know, this whole thing might actually work. And it was like, it was a really cool moment to see when work that we were doing inside of the fence was being translated out into the community. Um, and that was primarily just by getting volunteers within the community to help out alongside us. And, 
you know, so we continued this project um, while living on like a neighboring sheep farm owned by this like super sweet Dutch couple. And we had a team of 12 to 15 adults that would just be constructing these play structures from sustainable materials like reclaimed wood or used tires that we'd be building into play equipment. Um, and like un completely unplanned, we ended up having about four to 12 kids or age uh, kids from four to 12 that wanted to help out with us. I remember the second day showing up there and these kids were just hanging on the fence at 6 a.m. in the cold, just waiting for us to get there so that they could help out. Wow. And yeah, and it was just like, so long story short, I ended up having like, you know, eight-year-olds swinging pickaxes and moving wheelbarrows, which like, <laughs> OSHA, if you're listening, like this didn't happen. But like, <laughs> it, it, in the States, I was just like, there's no way this would fly. But it would, they were so enthusiastic and happy to be there with us that there was nothing that we could do to stop them. So it was just like, it was an all around like incredible experience. And, you know, we continued until we ended up wrapping that project. And I remember just walking into the classroom as we were leaving and, you know, saying goodbye to the principal who had just like become family to us while we were out there. And her and I were just embracing each other, both crying our eyes out and in front of a class of 30 kids. And she just whispered in my ear, like, this is a see you later kind of goodbye. Your family will be here when you come back. And that was something that had like really resonated with me and has resonated with me for the last five years since we left. And, you know, so staying in contact with her over the years and then, you know, recently learning about how the pandemic has impacted them. It was, you know, it was at that moment that it kind of brought these new projects together and just going like, you know what, we've got to get out there and then help make an impact. And so that's kind of where we landed uh, and kind of circled back to where we're at today. You're, you're going to start making me cry or get all teary eyed. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And I, you know, obviously it didn't start the best way with you yeah. ejected from a car and almost dying, <laughs> but to be making such a big impact. And you said 238 people. Community, yeah. It's just such a beautiful thing. And especially with these kids coming out at six in the morning, there's people who don't even wake up at, until nine right now. And it's like, yeah. they're excited to go build. And do you think that's just the fact that they kind of envisioned like, Hey, you're doing something great for us. So we want to help along or, or is it that just something that's ingrained because of their culture? It's, you know, there's probably a few factors at play, but I think like one of the biggest things for us was like trying to become one with their culture of life. We came in with the idea of like, you know, this is not our place. Like we're joining their community to help build this. And so a lot of that was like, getting in with the community, like going to the barbecues and like, you know, playing soccer on the field and like really feeling at one with these kids rather than just coming in and bringing our ideals and trying to force that upon them. So I think they just felt, you know, after the initial meeting, it was just like, huh, these people are actually like really cool. And they're like, they're here to help us build, not just they're here to build. And I think that was a very key differentiator for us when we went out there. Got it. And the other thing that I kind of had a question about is you obviously said a lot of positive things about your initial experience and how everybody was so loving and caring. But yeah, I'm assuming that like it's not necessarily like a, a walk in the park or a cakewalk. Like you probably have a bunch <laughs> of different cultural 
differences from the language barrier to the, I guess the, the environment with the weather that you had to go through. No. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we had, we definitely had a couple spots and with the weather, we were pretty fortunate. Um, you know, the weather was relatively warm. We did see snow one of the nights we were there, which was just like so strange to me to be like in South Africa. There's not a whole lot of vegetation. You've got snow coming down. Yeah. Um, but there were a couple culture shock moments. And I remember, I remember one, we were coming out of a store when we had just flown into one of the, one of the major cities and we were going into a mall and we, we had a can't, one of us had a camera around our necks cause we were just documenting a lot of it. And uh, another South African came up to us and he was just like, he's like, you don't realize where you're at. Like you can't be walking around with a camera or any kind of expensive stuff because you will get robbed in this parking lot. And it was just like such a shocking moment thinking like, you know, I'm thinking if we're just going to the mall down the street and I can just walk in, make my purchases and then head out. But like getting that culture shock of like, you're not safe here, even in the parking lot was something that was a little bit foreign to us. Um, so that was like definitely one of the things that really stuck out when I think back on it. Yeah. Is that, is that community? I I know there's a lot of countries or yeah, countries within Africa that are kind of at war with each other. Was that one of them that was kind of suffering through that? Um, no, not particularly. I think like where, where you have most of the crime within South Africa or in some of these major cities, and it's just like a fend for yourself. And it's just a little bit ingrained within the culture um, but was, what was actually really interesting was when you come out to these more rural communities and, you know, the primary school had about 250 kids and then the, the broader village, I think, maybe had a couple thousand individuals that were living there. Um, but I remember talking with a police officer one day and he was he was like, oh, you know, my shift ends at four o'clock. And I was like, oh, sweet. Like, who who comes in after you? And he kind of looked at me. He's like no one. He's like, we all go home and, you know, have dinner and spend time with our families. And I was like, well, what, what do you do with crime after 4 PM? And he's like, you know, we're a small village. We know who our criminals are. And like, that was a mind blowing thing to me where so many, like these villages kind of just band together and look out for themselves where that was a little bit of a contrast from the cities that we had spent in just prior to that. Mm, Makes sense. Makes sense. So how, how far was your village outside of, let's just say the big cities in Africa? Yeah. I mean, we had, we had flown into Port Elizabeth and that was probably, I want to say it was a two and a half or three hour drive outside of some of the major cities. And then you've got some smaller towns along the way that, you know, may have, you know, 20, 20,000 people in them. And then that village is probably 45 minutes beyond that. Okay. Okay. And you were, you were saying also that you built a school for that village. So no, it was uh, just a park and playground. So okay, it park was, and yeah, we pretty much built, I mean, I can't, I can't even describe how big it was, but like we had built like a full, all these sustainable play structures, swings, slides, and then like kind of what we called an adventure park where the kids could kind of run around and play and my sister being an artist, what, where she came in handy is we ended up creating these like plywood dinosaurs and we had like stegosaurus and raptors and T-Rex. And like, we had placed them along this adventure path and these kids would just be running along, you know, of course, like five minutes after we like concrete them into the ground, the kids are like on top of them trying to ride up, which we <laughs> hadn't planned for. So that was like one thing we were like, oh, I hope those things hold up. But yeah, exactly. The teacher <laughs> yeah. sends you a picture two days later. Yeah, the, the head ripped off. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if the dinosaurs are still there, but all the play structures and like them being landscape architects, like we, they knew their plants and all their trees and what was drought resistant. And so that was one piece of making this sustainable was they don't have a ton of groundwater in the area. And so we needed plants that were drought resistant. So it was really amazing seeing like a few years later, getting photos of it. You've just got these like big trees growing and all these plants that were, you know, so tiny when we had first planted them. And it was just really cool seeing that the, that the park had grown since we had left and it hadn't fallen apart. That's awesome. Awesome to hear. And you were kind yeah. of saying that, I guess, just in terms of the kids, you know, they're all super excited to play in this playground. You're really able to give them somewhat of a, like you're able to give them a normal childhood that they've always kind of wanted, you know, in, exactly. in a way of just not that, ne- not necessarily being able to provide everything, but just a park to play on and get some fresh air, which is so important. It was, yeah, it was really amazing to see because otherwise you've got, I mean, you've got kids that are kind of in their own little groups when it was just a dirt lot and they're, you know, either making toys, which is great, but you know, some of them could be getting into trouble. And so by providing a play space, they could develop both physically by just running and jumping and climbing on things, but just, emotionally developed by like working alongside their peers, taking turns, like running and playing with each other. It was, it was something that we were really proud to be a part of. That's cool. That's cool. I guess uh, one other question in terms of them going to school and, and we kind of touched on this a little earlier in terms of their occupations, but in Africa, do they kind of have more of a mentality? Cause I know they're a very family oriented culture as we were kind Mm -hmm. of talking about community, but do they ever want to, I guess, get out of the country and, and explore and actually go to like a, a boarding school in Europe or out I mean, yeah, I mean, that would of course be the dream, but unfortunately that opportunity is just not there for everyone. Yeah. So is it kind of like a cycle where they go to school and they're still there? Exactly. And so, I mean, you get kids that, you know, if, if you can't afford to go to the boarding school that's, you know, in the town 45 minutes away, like your education ends at 12. And it's just like, you're either off on your own to just figure out the world or, you know, oftentimes a lot of the women just go ahead and like get pregnant and just start families. And it just like continues that cycle. Um, A lot of these homes are just, you know, kind of shantytown setups, but they've got like, you know, eight to 10 family members per household, um, just kind of going together and getting through it. But I, I, from my experience, there weren't too many people from that specific village that did go ahead and leave and then try other things. Yeah. Well, it's tough too, because if you're, if your education stops at 12, your brain is still developing during that time. You aren't even a teenager yet. And you're trying to realize all your emotions and everything. And it's probably really tough for them to figure out what I'm going to do other than help my main village. Exactly. And like, you know, I had a good family. I was brought up well. I went to school and I still almost got myself in trouble. So it's like you can imagine what that can do to, you know, a young adolescent who's just on their own and fending for themselves. Yeah. Did you think do you think that experience in Africa, I guess, just post Africa just made you more thankful and gracious for everything when you returned? Because how long were you there for? Um, we were there for probably about a month, um, just working on that specific project. And then, you know, prior, prior to me joining, like the team had been working on like setting everything up for probably like nine months ahead of time before that. 
Um, but yeah, I think after the fact, it definitely made me more gracious. It made me appreciate that some people just, just come up on bad luck or could just get dealt a bad deck of cards. And like, I mean, it's something I've carried back with me and I still continue to this day up in, you know, downtown LA and skid row. Um, I have a couple of friends that will get together every Sunday night. And while this has kind of been paused due to COVID, but we'll get together every Sunday night and we'll um, partner with a church that comes into town and we'll hand out food and provide sack lunches for the homeless. And so yeah. We'll feed maybe 150 people in an evening. And then, you know, we'll house like a clothing area where I'm driving around Orange County in LA picking up clothing donations from friends and family. And we'll get out there and just, you know, people just need to know that they matter and they do. And it's, it's oftentimes that people get stuck in that situation. They just, they feel less than human. I think it's important for us to just really uplift our community and those around us. Especially in Skid Row because it, I don't know if you visited LA recently, but the homeless problem is just crazy there right now. Like, I mean, it's literally everywhere. As of, I think June 22nd, there were over 66,000 people living on the streets in Los Angeles, like the greater Los Angeles area, which is just like shocking and sad. That's insane. Yeah. It's crazy. And it's kind of like what you were saying in terms of making it not unique. Um, like you don't want to feel unique and feel like, oh, I'm homeless, but everybody else it's, it's also kind of bad because in a way it's kind of normalizing it to where everybody, they aren't able to get out of their situation. So they're trying to do the best and, and live in these little, I guess, homeless shanty towns as you would call them. Yeah. It's just really unfortunate that obviously you could donate as many clothes as you can, but LA is just such a, it's not a huge community. It's more small. So you're yeah. able to do as much. Yeah. So it is tough, but it just, it inspires us every day, you know, myself, especially to just like get out there and just try and try and leave it a better place than where I found it. Yeah. that That's one yeah. thing with like charitable work. When, when you really think about it, like everything I've, whether you're, helping somebody who's homeless or somebody in another country who may be a little less fortunate than you, or even Mm -hmm. helping like somebody who's a little younger than you, who's trying to go through life. I think taking on tasks outside of your traditional eight to five and do work for either charities or starting your own charity as as you are uh, in a way or starting your own mission Mm -hmm. or helping the less fortunate is such an important thing. Yeah. And I think it'll, I think for those people that do try it, they may be surprised with how much more fulfilling or how much more they may even get out of it by doing something like that. Yeah. And for me, it almost feels like a selfish cause because I get so much fulfillment out of doing some of these things. Yeah. Well, you're, you're making a difference. And I think, for example, like when, when you help somebody out, I think humans just naturally get this amazing feeling. It's, it's almost like a, a dopamine injection where it's like, exactly. oh, I helped somebody out. I, I could, I made their life better in some way. And it's, it's the best feeling ever. But a lot of it yeah. that you were kind of saying in terms of helping the less fortunate, it requires you to go into situations that are uncomfortable. Like a lot of people wouldn't go to Africa, even if they knew it would help a 238 person community out because they don't want to deal with the weather. They don't want to deal with mm-hmm. the language barrier. And even at a more granular level, a lot of people wouldn't go to Skid Row because they go down to the homeless shelters and they say, oh my gosh, these people are, are crazy. I don't want to deal with them. But a lot of them may have just fallen on bad luck. You said 66,000 yeah. people, right? Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, I, I can't imagine 66,000 people just being completely evil and wanting to cut your throat off or anything Thanks. like that, you know? Exactly. And so sometimes you just have to get uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to kind of ask, like, how is your passion between backpacking and outdoors and overseas? How's that really shaped your perspective on how you interact and see the world? Because a lot of it has to deal with mm-hmm. going into the uncomfortable head first and not, not holding any, anything back. Yeah. And I I think that's exactly it. And I think how I would respond to that question is with a quote from an author that I probably wouldn't normally be quoting, but I was just recently quoting Hunter S. Thompson to a friend and he, he was quoted once saying, buy the ticket, take the ride. And which knowing him could have meant an array of all kinds of different wild things. But (laughs) in in my, in my interpretation, it kind of distills down to that idea of getting comfortable, feeling uncomfortable and, you know, just getting out and going and doing something. And there's always going to be these what ifs and these, all the reasons of why nots. But I think for me, like, getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable. It's, it's this single phrase that I've been able to attribute to just about most of my life's impactful decisions. And, you know, it's what originally landed me in Alaska. It's, you know, what got me to finally pull the trigger on, you know, quitting my job and then leaving for Africa for the first time. And, you know, it likely played a role in later living on a farm in rural Tasmania, harvesting potatoes and hunting kangaroo for local, local farmers. It's, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the ideology of, you know, we're all just stories in the end. And so while you're here, just make it one worth telling. And for me, it's, that's what, that's what gets me up in the morning. Um, just wanting to try something new. I think so many of us get comfortable in a routine that works for us, but you know, what I encourage those that may be listening today is to not be afraid to stop and take a look around every once in a while, because when you find yourself with a fork in the road, I try picking the path that would make for a better story because I don't think you're going to regret it. Exactly. And I think, I think another big thing onto just, I guess, seeking uncomfort or discomfort and, and really just growing through that is that also having the mentality of like, why can't I do this? Like when you were kind of talking about for people who don't know, you also lived in Australia and you did hunt. That's like a legit thing. Yeah. And I was just like, whoa, like I thought this guy, that that's insane to me, but. Um, yeah. We could save that one for another time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We, we may have to uh, contact PETA before then or something, but yeah, but I think it's a, uh, I think it's so important because a lot of times, for example, you were saying, Hey, I quit my job and I left for Africa. A lot of people would be like, oh, well, like, what, what's going to happen when you come back? What about this? What about that? And really, you should have the mentality of like, why can't I do this? Because there are times where obviously it could go wrong, completely wrong, yeah. and it may not pay off, but you'll learn something from it. It's exactly. You'll learn a really important lesson in life and you'll grow stronger. And, and one thing I always say is like, the more uncomfortable situations you put yourself into, the more comfortable you are putting yourself into uncomfortable situations. Like I love that. It goes with everything. Perfect. Yeah. It goes yeah. with everything, whether it's moving to Africa with me personally, I've told this story before. So sorry if you're listening to it, again, <laughs> but skydiving when I can't even go on a roller coaster at Disneyland, like yeah. I'm that freaked out about heights. And I jumped out of a 
jump 13,000 feet. I mean, it's insane, but like little things like that, like it pushes you and I to, to go through, you know, like for example, you working at Dave and when you were probably applying and stuff, you're probably a little nervous. Hey, could I get this position and everything? Mm-hmm. And, or even if you have a project at Dave, but you're like, I survived the month <laughs> of Africa. I built a community for this many people. It really pushes yeah. you to do better. It really does. And it's, I mean, it's, it's just my personal philosophy and mantra that I just get comfortable feeling uncomfortable because that's when a lot more of the amazing things are going to happen in your life. Why do you think a lot of people are, um, I guess, just okay with being in their routine and they don't want to go into the uncomfortable? Because I know, I know more people who aren't willing to be, I guess, uncomfortable or, or get themselves in the situations than people who are willing to be, per se, with quotes, daredevils, because I don't really believe in that term that much. Yeah. And I mean, it's a good question because, and maybe my brain's just not wired completely right, but (laughs) I think, I think so many of us just get comfortable and in our safe space and, and routine is just something so easy for us to get caught into that it just feels normal. But then, you know, you could blink and five years go by blink and then 10 years go by. I think, you know, I think we're so afraid of failure is another component of that, that plays a really significant role. And, you know, home is always going to be there for most of us, you know, the jobs will always be there. And, you know, one of the quotes that I really, I really love is, you know, you could just as easily fail at doing something. What is it? Fail at something that you don't love, but you might as well try something that you do. And I, I think it's, you just should never be afraid to follow your passions and then just see what you can physically and mentally do. Yeah. I always say like with being comfortable, I used to be that person where I was in the same routine. I had this group of friends. I was literally doing the same routine over and over and I'm like, Oh, I'm so happy, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. once I got out of that routine, I was able to experience so many things I didn't think I would like, but I ended up just falling in love with and I they're they've become, you know, hobbies of mine or things like that. Like something as simple too, even uh you're kind of talking about jobs during this time and how there's always gonna be jobs available. Even even during COVID, it, it really sucks mm-hmm. right now, but it's hard to find a, a position, but there'll be jobs eventually, and I always tell that to people. But it's one of those things where sometimes I talk to people and they're saying, Oh, I don't know if I should apply for this position. I don't know if I should talk to this person or reach out to this person over LinkedIn. And I'm like, what's the risk? What's the risk? Why not? Yeah. yeah. It's There's how we got to talking today. So. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. That literally I, I would say probably I don't have an official statistic on this, unfortunately, <laughs> but I'd say probably 60% of my guests, I just met random randomly messaged over LinkedIn and, they're luckily mm-hmm. cool people. And it just doesn't apply to like work. It applies to everything. Whether you want to pick up a new hobby or try a new class or something like that, or, or, you know, talk to people you haven't talked to in a long time and, and not be afraid that they'll shut you down. It's such an important message. And I love exactly. that you're just preaching that and living that with every single day of your life. So yeah, I man. appreciate that. Cool. So cool. what's next for your, I guess, projects that you're working on with Africa. And yeah. I mean, right and now what's, what, oh, go ahead. Also before I, I, uh, 
cut you off. What what's the name of the uh, communal village? I also want to get that. Yeah, that one's uh, it's New Bethesda. That's N I E U dash B E T H E S D A. And yeah, they're just a fantastic community of people. Um, but yeah, what's up next? I mean, right now for the more immediate need, um, we're just focusing on getting this clothing aid over there. So we're going to be closing um, our funding here in the next uh, few weeks. And then we're going to start making purchases for all these clothing items that we're going to be getting over there. So I've got um, my contact um, on the ground out there who's helping organize with the school and getting all the different sizing. Um, but we, we, you know, time is of the essence and it's not something we can really sit in because it is freezing and it is cold there and we can make an impact now. Um, so that, that is the more immediate need project. And then the, the, the more evergreen one that we're looking to build, um, you know, my friend and I are still in the very early stages. I think like one thing that, you know, if we're going to do this, we want to make sure we can do it right and provide the best experience for both the donor and the child that we'll be supporting. Um, so, I mean, next steps right now, I mean, we're working through a 501c3 status to become a nonprofit and then, you know, hopefully launching something probably by early 2021, um, depending on when that comes through and just making sure we've got everything configured on our end to, um, facilitate all of this, but super, I'm super excited about it. I mean, we'll see, this is going to be a first, uh, for me and definitely outside of my comfort zone. So yeah. Um, but I'm looking forward to diving, diving into it. I think it'd yeah. be great. And I'll make sure to share that information out. And if I could help in any way, please let me know. I'd love to help or be a part of the initiative in any way I can. And just in terms of, uh, one more quick thing, just in terms of, because you've worked with a lot of nonprofits, let's say somebody wants to get involved during this time, specifically, I don't know, we'll, we'll throw out a situation, the situation in Lebanon and Beirut right now. Yeah, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But with yeah. the explosion that happened, and unfortunately, so many people have gone homeless, just a really, really terrible thing that happened. But yeah. what are some tips you would give in terms of getting involved other than just typical cash donation? Yeah, I mean, there's so much within our own communities. And, you know, I, I could speak more to like Lebanon and what happened over there specifically. I mean, there are certain organizations where you can feel comfortable providing like a monetary donation. Um, the Red Cross Lebanon is actually a great organization that they've got boots in the ground and they are actively working to help these people out. So for certain areas overseas, you should be able to find some good, you know, charitable organizations and, you know, do your research and see where that money goes. But there's so much just within our own communities, whether it, whether it is working with the homeless or mentoring children or, you know, people coming of age or, you know, people who don't have um, you know, father or mother figures in their lives. There's, there's so many opportunities that are available that you just got to go out and just look for them and get involved and try it. And if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work, but you can give it a go. And I think you'll, you'll most certainly have an impact on someone's life. Yep. Seek uncomfort, uh, seek discomfort and really get involved with the community. That's, that's such a great message to end on. So as always, yeah. thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. And cool. and we'll have you on in the future for another episode with your Australia stories. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Cool, man. Well, if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or a view. And more importantly, Jackson, I'm going to go put your link uh, to the, I guess, fundraiser for that yeah. clothing thing in the bio. So make sure to donate or reach out to Jackson. Um, also put your LinkedIn. If you want to get involved, yeah. 
I think it's such a great initiative, especially during this time. A lot of us take for granted that we're able to live in a home with a comfy bed. We're able to walk outside, not worry about having to step on glass or be warm because we have the clothes to do it. Where these kids in Africa, they could be ages, you know, infants, four to 12, they're, they're suffering during this time. So it's, it's such a great initiative. And uh, just want to say thanks for coming on again. And other than that, guys, subscribe if you guys like this episode. And I'll talk to you guys in the next one. See you later.